Yo, Chad, what if I told you there's a platform that could completely revolutionize your hiring strategy in a matter of hours? Yeah, I'd call bullshit. Well, it's not bullshit with AI for jobs powered by our friends at This Way Global. Okay, I'm listening. Uh, While everyone else is fishing in the same old talent pools, AI for Jobs can source over 160 million diverse candidate profiles. This Way Global has established unique partnerships with over 8,500 trusted diversity partners. So wait a minute. All of the hard on-the-ground work is already done. That's right, Cowboy. You can discover 300 qualified candidates per job rack instantly. Wow. It's like having a candidate sourcing magic wand. (laughs) Dude, if you had a magic wand, you would have Mexican pizzas all day. Mm. Uh, Stop distracting me, Sowash. AI for Jobs Advanced Matching Algorithm analyzes past applicants using trillions of historical matching events and over 1,600 data points. Now that is what AI should be doing, saving recruiters time on sourcing while they provide a white glove candidate experience. Let's wrap this shit up. I'm hungry. Listen up, kids. Revolutionize your hiring process today by jumping over to thiswayglobal.com and checking out AI for Jobs, where you can learn more about how to leverage AI for your recruiting instead of just writing poems and grocery lists. That is thiswayglobal.com. We out. This, the Chad and Cheese podcast, brought to you in partnership with TA Tech. TA Tech, the Association for Talent Acquisition Solutions. Visit tatech.org. Okay, Joel, quick question. Yep. What happens when your phone vibrates or your texting alert goes off? (laughs) Dude, I pretty much check it immediately. And I bet everyone listening is reaching to check their phones right now. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I call it our Pavlovian dog reflex to text messaging. Yeah, that's probably why text messaging has a freaking 97% open rate. What? Crazy high candidate response rate within the first hour alone. Which are all great reasons why the Chad and Cheese podcast love text to hire from Next. Love it. Yep, that's right. Next with the double X. Not the triple X. So if you're in talent acquisition, you want true engagement and great ROI. That stands for return on investment, folks. And because this is the Chad and Cheese podcast, you can try your first text to hire campaign for just 25% off. Boom. So how do you get this discount? You're asking yourself right now. Tell them, Chad. It's very simple. You go to chadcheese.com. And you click on the next logo in the sponsor area. Easy. No long URL to remember. Yeah. Just go where you know. Chadcheese.com and next with two X's. Hide your kids. Lock the doors. You're listening to HR's most dangerous podcast. Chad Sowash and Joel Cheeseman are here to punch the recruiting industry right where it hurts. Complete with breaking news, brash opinion, and loads of snark. Buckle up, boys and girls. It's time for the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All right, all right, all right. What's up, everybody? The uh, the IQ of this show is going to get to all-time highs today. Uh, we're talking to Josh Wright, Chief Economist uh, with ISIMS. 
my man worked at Bloomberg, the Federal Reserve. He's got degrees from Harvard and Yale. Chops. He's got chops. Uh, he's dude. probably he's probably very embarrassed to be on this podcast. <laughs> uh, Josh, welcome to the show. How are you? It's great to be with you. Um, I make it a policy not to believe any of my own press or hype. <laughs> <laughs> so what did I miss about you that uh, our audience should know? Gee, you covered a lot of the highlights. Uh, one interesting thing is before I got into economics, I actually used to work in international peacekeeping missions. Oh, that's pretty cool. So fun fact about me. Yeah. Way to make me feel even worse about myself, Josh. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. There's a metaphor in there, you know putting out fires, dealing with chaos, rapid change. In my spare time, I saved the rhinoceros population of Uganda. Yes. Ran into a <laughs> ran into a burning building, saved children, many children. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. So Josh, I'm going to throw this right out to you right off the right off the bat. ISIMS has a chief economist on staff. Why does ISIMS need a chief economist on staff? We don't really see chief economists really in our industry. So why was it so important for ISIMS to do that? Well, one thing you're pointing out is that it's a great point of differentiation. Mm -hmm. It makes us different from other companies, but also as the company has grown very rapidly in the last five or 10 years, uh, it's we have accumulated a large amount of data, but they need domain knowledge. They need an expert to help them interpret that data. We've got a lot of great technologists here, but not people who have spent the amount of time that I have in trying to understand the macroeconomy and the labor market from that really high level and can connect the dots from the trends within the industry and the trends within the client's activity um, and their hiring operations to broader trends in the macroeconomy, the unemployment rate, uh -huh. and that kind of thing. So we have the BLS for that. Do you work with the BLS? Are you providing BLS data, kind of like gap data that they're really not seeing in the market? Funny you should ask about that. We actually are in conversation with the BLS about about possibly providing them supplementary data mm -hmm. to increase the geographic granularity of some of their reports or doing some kind of study on if it's a one, it could be a, a running supplement or it could be a one-off study to help them understand what's going on out there. Because like a lot of areas of the government, the Bureau of Labor Statistics is under a lot of funding constraints mm -hmm. and they know that they're not likely to see, their needs are growing, but they're not likely to see their funds rise Right. with that. We know iSIMS as an applicant tracking solution. They're certainly getting into other things. Uh, what we're going to talk about today is your recent survey on the myths and realities of, I guess, the gig economy or the contingent workforce. Um, why is iSIMS sort of uh, positioned to talk about this as an ATS? And why did you guys pick this, this topic to cover? Well, without getting too much into the marketing of it, iSIMS has really been expanding the last couple of years from just an applicant tracking system to being a whole platform for all things talent acquisition and hiring an economist was part of that to take a broader view of what are the needs of uh, organizations that are really large and have really thorny hiring problems. So one of the problems out there is how do you understand your total labor expense, your total labor spend, um, your total human capital acquisition and understanding what's going on in the gig economy is a key part of that. And based on the re on the survey, you guys are going to get more into uh, providing services for hiring and managing contingent workforces, although you're probably not prepared to talk about that. I like I said, I've gone about as far as I can go in the marketing um, for the product roadmap. I've got some wonderful colleagues that I can point you towards. Fair enough, Josh. Cool. 
Well, let's let, let's jump into the report. I mean, we're talking myths versus realities of the gig economy. So myth number one, let's have some conversation around this. People usually start taking gigs or contingent work as a short term solution to get a foot in the door while they're looking for a full time job. So it's not not really something they want to do. They're just trying to get their foot in the door. What's the reality behind that? Well, the reality is that a lot of people prefer contingent and contingent work and gigs. Mm-hmm. Um, they prefer the flexibility of that kind of job. And in fact, a lot of them have been doing it for years. We found that uh, 40% have been doing it for more than five years, in fact. And when you look at the other 60%, it breaks up uh, about 20% each for one to three years and three to five years and, and less than that. So it's uh, there are a lot of experienced workers out there who actually uh, value having this kind of arrangement, mm-hmm. um, and it works it works to their advantage. Wow. We kind of think of the the gig economy as being it's all about Uber and are people mm-hmm. getting jobs from apps, um, and a lot of them are blue collar. Maybe they're down on their luck, or they've got some special need that they're trying to fill in the short term. But actually, we found that there are a lot of people who for whom this is a viable career option. Well, I found it interesting that only fifteen percent said they wanted to land a full-time job. That's right. They, they, they weren't even looking for a full-time job. No. Uh, now, it's important to remember that there's a lot of fragmentation in this market. You know, the, these people, there's uh-huh. a lot of diversity in the people who take gig work. Um, so in the world of finance, we call this sometimes a barbell structure. So you've got people at the top end of the gig economy and people at the lower end of the gig economy. So there are these advantaged mm-hmm. individuals who've got the knowledge and they've got the skills, they've got the networks and the experience to be able to basically maybe not write their own check, but arrange things in around, arrange their work life around their overall life. So those are the people at the top right. end. They're the ones who are not looking for any change. They're saying, this is suiting me great. But then there's people okay. at the lower end where they are kind of holding on by their fingertips and it is more of a precarious mm. position. And that's one of the things that gets glossed over in the popular media discussions. Um, initially, there was a lot of hype about the gig economy is so great. Uh, Silicon Valley is, you know, it's another big win for revolutionize, revolutionizing um, our lifestyle. And now we're in the backlash period where you've got the California Supreme Court has come out with a case talking about workers' rights. Um, People Mm -hmm. are concerned about uh, a whole lot of things at, at some of these companies. But what's getting obscured there is that there's this other underlying trend, this underlying portion of the labor market where things have been humming right along. Um, and it has been doing that for a while, actually. Some For some of these people, it's a very stable situation. They've been pursuing it, like I said, for more than five years. Okay. Okay. So let's dig in a little bit to the uh, the segmentation of this. Um, you talk about uh, educated females in their mid-career being uh, really apt to to be in the gig economy. You talk about millennials in the survey. Break, break down sort of ages and geographic regions, maybe. Break this down into who is who exactly is the gig economy. Yeah, the gig economy um, tends to be either older workers who in some sense have made it, have arrived. Um, they may not have some kind of golden parachute situation, but they've, they're have they able to set themselves up for something that they like. And those people tend to be you know mid-40s or older. And then you've mm-hmm. got the younger people who are in their 20s and even younger, and they're just trying to find something to, to get by on, basically. Um, the, those older people tend to be knowledge workers. Um, they're doing white collar kind of work that tends to be creative. They were doing technology and professional services, um, a, a pretty wide variety of work, um, but distinct, distinctly white collar. And then you've got the people who are doing transportation and blue collar kind of work. So would it be your contention that 
uh, women in their mid-career are high because of, of pregnancy, or would it be something else? Um, it's not so much people in their 30s. That, that's there, but it's more like women and men um, who are further along in their career, kind of past that hump stage, um, you might say. And they, yeah, it's more middle-aged and up. Okay. Because I would have guessed women get pregnant, they look for alternative work options and join the gig economy, but you're not. You're saying that's not the case. Joel is all about stereotypes. Let's just throw that out there real quick. Go ahead. First of all, it happens. But second of all, this is the beauty of research. This is why we conduct this kind of study is to find out whether or not our preconceptions are right or not. Uh And here we find that the story is a little bit more complex. Um, And the other thing is we have to think carefully about the different kinds of arrangements. So contingent work and gig work, it's not only a great variety of different people and a great variety of different Mm -hmm. kinds of occupations, but also a great variety of different kinds of contract structures. So Mm -hmm. if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics without you all with too many definitions here. They break it out into independent workers, on-call workers, temps, subcontractors. And you find a lot of variety within that. So the independent contractors, the people who are kind of masters of their own destiny, those actually tend to be men. So overall, you've got women in this space, but they're not necessarily in the positions that are as privileged and as advantaged as these middle-aged and older men. Mm-hmm. I also noticed that uh, the highest number of gig workers tend to have some college um, without having stereotypical comments uh, to follow <laughs> that. Why would most of the workers be some college as opposed to none or bachelor's degree or higher? Well, when you add it all up, if you've got some college or more, like you, know, you complete college, you get an, an advanced degree, um, that's over two thirds. Of the, of the people who have some kind of gig work mm-hmm. as their primary mm-hmm. job. And that's relative. That's seventy six percent versus sixty percent for the U.S. population as a whole. So these people are more educated, and that's that correlates with doing the knowledge work. You've got to have the education. You've got to have the knowledge in order to be able to access that kind of work. But with some college, are they dropping out to do gig work? Um, some of the, some of the younger people might. A lot of the younger people are actually still enrolled in mm-hmm. school. So maybe they dropped out. Maybe they're switching over to an associate's degree. Maybe they're getting some kind of vocational um, certification. Um, but they're they're upskilling themselves. It, the contingent work is another myth. Contingent work is stressful because gig workers never know whether they uh, their next paycheck is coming from. Right. So what is the big reason why um, people actually choose contingent work? And it says the, the myth says it's stressful because you don't know where your next paycheck is coming from. But what's the reality there? Well, the reality in terms of the upside is that it was very clear that flexibility was the mm-hmm. number one attribute. We asked people, you know, what's your top reason for taking a gig job? And more flexible work hours was cited by 64% of respondents. For every other um, answer that was uh, given to them as an option, it was less than 30%. So by more than two times the amount, you know, the two times higher rate, um, flexibility of work hours was cited as the upside. And on the downside, yes, there were people who were concerned about um, Mm -hmm. less job stability, but that was still less than half. And actually 60%, a little bit more than half, they focused more on the issue of benefits. So a lack of, you don't necessarily get the retirement benefits, you don't necessarily get the healthcare benefits, unemployment, disability, vacation, paid sick leave, all the rest. Are those those issues changing and do you see government taking a greater role in helping contingent workers with those issues like healthcare? Well, I think we... (sighs) 
For the federal government, I don't see a lot happening in D.C. right now in these areas. We've got gridlock over the argument of what's going on with what should be happening with healthcare, who should provide that. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have this theory that maybe the states will be laboratories, and to some extent that's happening. But that's very much up in the air what the government is going to do. I think for employers as well as for workers, and the question is, what are you going to work out as an arrangement purely within the mm-hmm. private sector? And I think if you're going out there and you're trying to get the top talent, one of the things you can do in looking at this report is think about, okay, some people really like these arrangements. Who are those people and how do they compare to the people I'm trying to bring into my workforce? Who are the people that I want to hire? If I can replicate some of these aspects, mm-hmm. this flexibility is one of the top ones. Um, if I can provide more flexibility to the workers to whom that appeals and the, the workers that I care about, then that's going to be a win. That's an extra value proposition. That gives me a competitive edge. Now, is this showing that the workforce is really evolving, though, and, and they're really focusing on that flexibility option and that if companies would get out of the time clock, clock punching 1950s, that uh, they might actually look more toward FTE positions as opposed to these more flexible jobs that they're that they're in now these these non contingent or these contingent jobs that they're in now well i don't think it's changing in terms of what people want i think people most people tend to want to uh, work to live rather than live to work although you do have those you know high end grinders and achievers who are, are going to mm-hmm. always be striving um, the question is what is what are the norms in our workplaces and what's the relative power of the workers in order to kind of get better arrangements for themselves when you look back at the late 90s we had um, a very tight labor market you had the tech boom and suddenly you had all these young people graduating with degrees in computer science and other kinds of developing coding skills through other means they were in this uh, position to demand more from employers and that had to do with money but it also had to do with the things that just made work their life at work a little bit better so that's where business casual comes from and how it spread to many different workplaces outside of just the tech industry um, and I think that you know, one of the things that we're going to see now in this tight labor market and with the continued strains and pulls towards people with um, hard programming and tech and data science skills um, is they're going to want to accommodate those workers with more flexible work schedule. The question is how much that diffuses out mm-hmm. to affect the rest of us, those of us who don't have as strong of a bargaining position kind of one by one. Josh, I've talked about on the show uh, how I think a downturn in the economy uh, will be a good thing for uh, you know sites like Upwork or Uber or uh, pl- sites that are platforms to, to have gig work. Uh, would you agree with that contention if, if another great recession happens? Are we going to see a flood of people flock to uh, the contingent workforce? And assuming that we do, uh, will they stay there when the economy gets better? I'd say yes to the first question and probably not to the second question. Mm-hmm. The reality is that we don't have, this, despite the great work that we've done in this survey, we don't have a complete picture a complete picture of how the gig economy works. But the mm-hmm. current um, belief amongst the experts in the field is that this is more cyclical than we believed just a couple of years ago. And what we do know, we've got a long history of this, is that part time work is a very cyclical phenomenon, by which I mean, if we go into recession, then yes, employers don't hire people full time as much because they're more uncertain about the outlook. So they hire them for just part time Mm -hmm. positions. Following that logic, they're very likely to go out and hire people more on a contingent basis in addition to a part-time basis when we get into a recession and in the aftermath. However, because we don't have a complete time series, we don't have a full history of data looking at just contingent work, uh, we don't actually Mm -hmm. have the proof to support that. So that's why it's important for 
places like ISIMS to go out and fund studies, promote the conversation um, so we can all learn more about this issue and keep it top of mind. So as we go through the economic cycle and whatever else the years may bring, uh, we know mm-hmm. to keep our eye on this because you're right. This It's going to be very interesting what happens um, when we have a slowdown, if and when we have a slowdown, how employers will respond. Okay, listener, how can you help your employees become more productive? I have answers. How about automating manual and repetitive tasks, giving meaning to data, then allowing that data to actually drive decisions? And how about matching people to your jobs quicker? Well, wait, the Chad and Cheese has a new LLM? No, Cheeseman, I'm talking about TextKernel. Ah, okay, that makes more sense. What I'm hearing is the groundbreaking concept of, wait for it, yeah, simplicity. <laughs> seriously, though, seriously. Text kernel cuts through the complexities like a tortilla chip through some hot nacho cheese. Oh, my God. Really? Nacho references already. Anyways, Text kernel brings efficiency and productivity to your operations. Text kernel seamlessly unifies your tools and data to drive efficiencies and success. TextKernel is creating new opportunities for your recruitment journey, kind of like adding guac to my barbacoa burrito. Oh, my God. How about extracting meaningful insights from data? I mean, that that's something. Swiftly matching yeah. people with jobs, automating repetitive tasks. Who knew such advanced concepts were even possible in the land of human resources? Uh, we did, Chad. We did. Dude, wrap it up. I'm a little hungry. Imagine that. Uh, Okay, listener, get ready to use today's tech to drive efficiencies and productivity. Visit textkernel.com. That's T-E-X-T-K-E-R-N-E-L.com. Nachos. (laughs) Let's take a look at the economy now. And I mean, yeah, when it slows down, I can definitely see, you know, it's it's much easier because you can pay as you go. But right now it's hard to get people in the first place. It's hard to get people to actually finish the projects you have going on. Doesn't it make sense for employers now to be able to change their scheme and stop looking for FTEs? Because they're not out there, number one. And number two, there is talent that's out there. If I need a marketing professional, I know I can go to Communo. It's a marketplace for marketing individuals. I can get my projects done. And from your uh, from your research, it, it, dem- it actually shows that many of these positions are indefinite contracts anyway. So I can have them on pretty much almost as an FTE without the benefits, and they can still be on indefinitely. Yeah, in a tight labor market, it's all about getting creative. You know, can you find the pockets of talent that other people haven't found, and can you appeal to them? Yeah. So, you know, I definitely think that it makes sense to go to all kinds of alternative sources, whether they are you know different websites, whether they are different apps, and other kinds of providers that specialize in different fields or specialize just in you know contract labor in general, even if it's not within a specific profession or domain. Um, those are definitely important tools. Also, taking a look at different populations. You know, there's the reality 
reality is that there continue to be a lot of disparities amongst different social groups um, in our society. It's very clear. Just t- you just take a look at the mm-hmm. unemployment rate. There's a story in the Wall Street Journal just a week ago talking about how this tight labor market has led to lower unemployment for people with disabilities. And they had a couple of really interesting stories about people on the autis- autism spectrum who employers were so desperate they had found ways to accommodate the needs of this population and were able to exploit the strengths of this population. Josh, I'm going to try to get sort of geeky here on you, but I know you're an economist, so I think I can ask it in a way that you'll have a good answer. Um, as as the world becomes a, a single marketplace, right? So somewhere like Upwork, uh, you have developers from all over the world competing for work all over the world. What do you think that does to sort of the standard of living um, for one in the in the you know third world or developing countries, as well as the standard of living for develop or developed countries like our own? Um, and particularly in our country, will people gradually have to take less money because the the number of people who do that job worldwide are accessible? Or do you think um, the lower economies uh, come up to our standard of living? It's a great question. And in many ways, it's one of the great questions of our time. I think, yes. well, first of all, <laughs> yes, way to go, score. Um, one of the things mm-hmm. that we have to think about here is, yes, there's a simple logic of when you've got more people in the talent pool, then you're going to have more competition. The question is, how do you respond to that? Um, really, it's about differentiation. So I don't think it's a question of simply accepting uh, passively some fate of there's a larger labor pool and now you're going to get paid less. The question is, what are you going to do in that environment to differentiate yourself? And that's you as an individual worker and that's us as a society. When we, It's not impossible to see the writing mm-hmm. on the wall all the time. You can't, you can't nail it all the time, but you certainly can see some trends and make some educated guesses. And when you see where the trend lines head, what are you going to do to support the people around you in developing what I refer to as labor market literacy? You, know, you don't want to be in a position of trying to compete with garment workers in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. That's not a great career move right now, to take an extreme example. Moving into the area of data science, whether or not you're actually a data scientist, mm-hmm. that's not necessarily the game. Um, because that might not be your, your your greatest strong suit. But if you're really good at, I'll give you a great example. My sister, she's got a degree in uh, photography and fine arts. Doesn't mm-hmm. sound like very technical, but she figured out that if she just added a little bit of cognitive psychology and a little bit of tech savvy and a little bit of data science, and she's certainly not a data scientist by mm-hmm. any stretch of the imagination, but with combining those skills, she's able to um, she's been able to reinvent herself with a great career in uh, user experience design and the way humans interact with visual information and the way they interact with computers. So that's a really smart move, taking what she's the strength that she has in creativity and the arts and the way humans respond to, you know, different kinds of, um, you know, visuals and, but combine it with just enough technical um, know-how to really engage with the, where the economy is headed. So let's take that, that, that question and, and kind of compound it a little bit. So Andela is an organization that's funded by uh, Al Gore's foundation and they're actually training developers in Africa right now because of the lack of developers that we have here and they're actually paying them a, a much larger wage than than uh, than the normal in that in that population which is great obviously for for that community but once again once the cycle turns we have more competition that we've actually created outside the United States why aren't we taking these same types of programs 
and actually instituting them into our current workforce to be able to skill them up to ensure that we do have the labor market literacy that we need? It's a really great question. Um, the reality is that we are, our best understanding is that the private sector is starting to step up and do that. We I continue to hear about um, anecdotal evidence to suggest that employers are reaching to find those alternative pools of labor, provide extra training to upskill the workers and create the workforce that they need. That's a very positive development. And to the extent that the government is not stepping up to do this kind of work, it's really important that the private sector do that. And if you want to compete for talent and if you want to get your products and your services out to market faster than the other person, then it's really important to think about that as part of your strategy um, for not only how you manage people and manage talent, but how you actually develop uh, you know, what you're offering to your customers and clients. Now, is this really on the government to do, though? I mean, because the, the people are actually going to work for these organizations in the first place, and the organizations are making the money off the people's backs. So why, why do we always look to the government to actually solve this when, in most cases, actual the, the corporate America knows what they need, they know the skills, and they, they know how to actually train those skills? Why are we always looking to give them a handout? Well, we're getting a little bit of breath of economics here and into political science. The, it, <laughs> it's a question for us as citizens whether or not we yeah. want the government to provide that. As an economist, I can tell you about what the market forces tend towards and where yes. that's going to drive and also something about what the role of the government could be. But ultimately, it's a kind of ethical, political choice, who, what we want to demand as voters. Automation is a topic on our show all the time. Um, who's going to be out, who's mm -hmm. going to be, you know, replaced by, by robots and bots, et cetera. Um, I'm curious in the gig economy, um, are there any gigs that are safe from being automated or are there any current full-time jobs that can't be gig jobs or contingent jobs? So teachers, doctors, et cetera. Do you see those safe from, from gigs becoming gigs? Okay, for the first question, what can and can't be automated? I feel like that is a trap because someone's going to play this <laughs> clip back in 20 years and say, we figured it out. It's, it's all a trap. So, you know, my, my, my basic thought is to not underestimate human ingenuity. And not underestimating human ingenuity means not underestimating what the robots that we build will someday be able to do. Mm -hmm. But we do have a good sense of what kinds of things are tough for robots. Manual dexterity is really um, tough for them. Creativity and empathy are really tough for them. Um, we do see the rise of chatbots and all kinds of actual physical robots who are doing increasingly sophisticated things. Um, but those are areas where you can think about um, there's a human advantage. In terms of what can't be made contingent, um, in principle, there's nothing that couldn't be made contingent. I think the reality, though, is that there there's a lot of value in having a long-term relationship, mm -hmm. whether you are you know, a teacher, uh, like you mentioned, uh, who's, who needs to have some kind of continuity with the student in order to judge the progress and figure out what, it, what does this person need to achieve their learning goals, or for an organization. Um, it's, you, know, you can get by with a lot of people on the periphery of an organization, potentially, but you're always going to need some people in the core who have some institutional memory, who've got the relationships, and know how to drive the change rather than just contract out for some of the tasks. Well, I'd like to point to one of the parts of your research that uh, actually demonstrates that Gen X, go figure, are the ones who are doing all the goddamn work 35 hours a week uh gen x boomers are obviously on their way out they're still doing they're doing just as much hours wise as the millennials lazy asses and gen z's 
uh, you're looking at 23 hours. I mean, they're really just getting started. Um, they should be doing more, though. Uh, what is there any more depth that you can provide us when it comes to really just uh, looking at the different segments, the population uh, from an age standpoint? And what should we see, especially with the millennials being such a large population? What do we what do you think we'll see in the gig era? Will it grow or will they just turn into boomers? And I'm guessing Josh is a millennial. Am I right on that? Yeah, I'm, I'm cuspy. <laughs> just, just some context. He's cuspy. I think, uh, I think there's a lot of power numbers. And as the millennials work, uh, you know, move through the workforce, they're going to change it. And they've come up, uh, they've come of age with different expectations from prior generations. And we might not see the economy itself get gigified or the workforce get gigified, but I think that the full-time jobs that millennials want will be more gig-like. And so it's it's more like the full-time positions are going to end up looking a little bit more like gigs than actually as much of the work being transformed into gigs. That's my current view. This was a pretty extensive survey. You guys surveyed um, a thousand Americans uh, who held at least one contingent job as their primary or secondary income um, from also the companies that you guys uh, work with. What stood out to you or what surprised you most from the survey that you did? That is a tough question because there was a lot that was surprising in here. I think probably just how, how strong that mm -hmm. top end of the market was. 69% to 82 per, to 81%, uh, depending on how you measure it, in uh, focus in knowledge work and how many of these contracts were open-ended. You know, 59% had totally open-ended contracts. 69% were six months or longer. So that means less than a third were working on contracts that were less than six months. And for me, one of the big takeaways of this report is that there's an alternative brass ring out there. So I, I mentioned this idea of labor market literacy before, and I don't think that people realize that this is something to aim for. It's not just about the corner office. It's about the home office, too. And I think if more people understood that that was a possible and attractive option, they could make better decisions to set themselves up for that someday. It's not for everyone, but it's going to be out there for some people and probably more people than we realize. And the takeaway is you've got to invest in your skills and your network and take a long-term long view on how that's going to set you up for if you are attracted to that kind of lifestyle and that kind of work-life situation, um, what, what are the mm -hmm. ingredients and how are you going to acquire them over time? Because uh, as the old saying goes, I may be cuspy towards the millennial, but I still remember the old ads of you too can be a winner at the game of life. <laughs> and if you want to win at this particular game, you know, we, this survey tells you something about what it's going to take. You need to have the people who are going to be mm -hmm. your sources of projects in the future, because so many of these jobs are um, uh, found through referrals. And we found that it was usually three or more um, contract jobs being or three or more contracts for jobs being held at at a time and you've got to have someone else in the hopper in case one of those contracts finally comes to a conclusion someone else to, to give you your next job that was more than double the rates i mean referrals was 65 percent. job boards was number two at only 30 percent 32 percent so referrals more than double that of job boards which i thought was pretty amazing not what you know it's who you know exactly that, that truth hasn't yeah. changed. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And another point of comparison there is uh, finding this kind of contingent work through online apps or just like apps on your phone, uh, only 17%. So it really isn't about Uber. 
<laughs> well, no, but Uber Uber is coming out with uh, with an expanded app called Uber Works, which is going to do more than just drivers. Then there's Tiller that's out there, Wanalo, Communo for marketing, 99designs, freelancers, Fiverr, Upwork. I mean, they're just it's growing. And from our standpoint, Josh, I mean, we are constantly looking at tech, but also the workforce as well to be able to see which tech actually makes sense. And most of these platforms, we are very bullish on. Um, would you be as well? <laughs> that was that was Chad's final attempt to sound smarter than the guy with the Harvard degree, <laughs> by the way. It never works. <laughs> very good attempt. Let me see if I can wriggle free here. Um, you know, I, as an economist, you know, I'm not I'm not an equity analyst. I don't take positions on particular um, companies, but. I, I can say that with the long-term trends as I see it, this clearly we're going through a technological shift here, and there's a distinction between how much the of the work is changing versus how the way that work is found. And it's hard to imagine that we're not going to see a continued shift towards using these applications because so many things are moving online. They've already been moving online for two decades now. So there's no reason not to expect that this is going to continue. Uh, this shift is going to continue here as well. Mm -hmm. The question is, from an economist perspective, what's the kind of natural end state or what's the end game here? Is it going to be a market that's going to have two or three top providers and you've got to figure out who those are? Or is it going to be... a um, um, you know, a lot of different specialists, and you'll actually have a dozen or two dozen really successful apps. But certainly, it seems like a, a really attractive space to go and try and solve that problem. You know, if you can come up with a better answer to that, then you can make a better investment decision, and you're the one who's going to make the money. There it is. And with that, Josh, <laughs> we thank you for your time. Josh, if someone wants to know more about you, your organization, or find the survey, where should they go? You can go to www.isims.com. If you add a slash hiring-insights, you'll find my blog and a lot of other great material. We've also got a monthly hiring indicator that you can check out that's found there that gives you the latest job trends according to uh, our data based on over 4,000 customers, over 4 million job applications, 4 million jobs, and over 75 million job applications a year. And you can find me on Twitter at J Wright Stuff. That's right like the brothers, J Wright Stuff. <laughs> so you are a great marketer. Susan Vitale would be there proud. Chad, we out. We out. Hi, this is Stella Cheeseman. Thanks for listening to the Cheese and Chad podcast. Or at least that's what I call it. Anyway, make sure you subscribe on iTunes. That silly Android phone thingy or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to give Bucket some money to our sponsors. Otherwise, I may be forced to take that coal mining job I saw on Monster.com. We out. Okay, 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 okay. Before we go, remember when I asked you about the whole reflex and check your text messages thing? Yeah, you know all about reflexes. Uh, and then I br <laughs> brilliantly tied it to text messages 97% open rate. Then I elegantly... <laughs> elegantly tied it to a better experience for your candidates. <laughs> Don't laugh, Chad. I can be elegant. Can't I? Whatever, man. I know it's redundant. You already heard about text to hire, but you're still not using text to hire from next. What? I, I, I know, man. Come on, man. Since advertising takes repetition to soak in. I just thought I'd remind you again, this was all by elegant design. It's all about text to hire and it's all about next. And elegant design. So go to chadcheese.com, click on the next logo, 
and get 25, yeah, I said 25% off your first text to hire campaign. Engage better, use text to hire from next. Two X's. Booyah. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.